turn together in Holy Scripture to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul in this chapter is responding to a certain mindset that was in the church of Thessalonica that thought that Jesus was going to return very soon, maybe tomorrow, maybe a week from now, maybe a month from now, and they were troubled by that, disturbed by that. Some of them were giving up their jobs because of that, and the Apostle is saying, yes, he's coming soon. But there's certain signs that you need to watch for before he comes. And that's what he's addressing in this chapter. But he gives a, a beautiful account then of the return of Christ as the judge. So let's read this word of God, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, is that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure." In unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. We read thus far in Holy Scripture. In light of that passage and others in Holy Scripture, let's consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19. Continuing the exposition of the Apostles' Creed, particularly that part of the Apostles' Creed that deals with God the Son, question 50 asks, Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God? 
because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick or the living and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a certain dread that we feel when we think about the end of the world. We know, of course, that the dispensationalists are wrong. There will be no secret rapture that enables believers to escape the coming tribulation. We know also that the post-millennialists are wrong. There will be no golden age in which Christians rule this world for a thousand years. But there's a part of us, perhaps, that wishes that they were right. That we could escape what's coming. The world is getting darker. Now, Christians have always believed a man of sin will appear who will set up a world power that rebels against God and unites the world in rebellion against God. But until recently, this expectation has always been accompanied maybe with a little bit of head-scratching. How can that be? How can one man unite the whole world when the world is so big and the nations are so different from one another? But the world's a much smaller place than it used to be. Thanks to technology... And language isn't the barrier that it once was. And sin. Sin is becoming more perverse. More flagrant. More loved and defended than ever. And we dread what's coming. We wish we could just escape. Suddenly disappear up into heavenly glory. But there's an important reason for the darkness, beloved. It needs to get dark. The kingdom of man needs to show itself for what it truly is. The ugliness and the destructive nature of sin needs to be fully manifested. The man of sin needs to appear to make his war against the Lamb and against his saints. The darkness must come. For it's always at the deepest and darkest part of the night that the sun begins to rise. And that's what it's all about. It's not about you and me escaping trials and tribulations, beloved. It's not about the church ruling over this world, this world, for a thousand years. 
It's about the light shining in the darkness as the Son of God returns in the brightness of His coming. And that's what I call our attention to this morning. Believing the brightness of His coming. First, we will see that when He comes, He will come as the judge. Secondly, when He comes, He will come as our head. And finally, He's coming for you. Believing the brightness of His coming, coming as the judge, coming as the head, coming for you. Now when Jesus returns, He will find a world that is completely dark with wickedness. Now if you look at it on the surface, it will not seem that way. What it will seem like in some ways is that business is continuing as usual. There will be people who are marrying and giving in marriage, just as always, as, Math- as Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 38. There will be people who are working in the fields side by side, who are grinding the flour with the wheel, or in modern language, working together in the factories. There will be those who say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the world. Where is the promise of His coming? As Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verse 4. In some ways it will seem like business continues as usual. Besides that, it will seem like not only is business continuing as usual, but there's great progress. There's great peace and great prosperity for the human race that has been achieved And it will be a greater peace and a richer prosperity than the world has ever seen before. The marrying and the giving in marriage will be accompanied with lavish eating and drinking and feasting. The laborers in the fields and the factories will be creating a wealth unheard of ever before. The world, as it will be at the very end, will be a new Babylon full of gold and silver and precious stones, full of the merchandise of the kingdom of this world. As Revelation 18 describes it, cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and all the goods that you could ever desire, it will all be there. The world will be apparently at peace. The human spirit at last will have achieved its dream, will have unlocked its full potential. This is what the men will be saying. This is what it will look like. And it will all be thanks to the one man who made it all possible. One man, a man who dismisses religion, a man who scoffs at the true God, much to the laughter and applause of his followers. But a man who, even as he scoffs at God and dismisses him, creates a cult around himself and sits enthroned at the pinnacle of human society and benevolently receives the worship of the multitudes who revere Him as if He Himself is God in the flesh. Sitting in the temple of God, the Apostle says, this person will show himself that He is God, all the while opposing and exalting Himself above all that is called God. That's verse 4. And He will seem like a great deliverer. He will seem like the Savior of mankind. He will seem like the one man you can really trust in. And his kingdom will seem like a kingdom of light, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of plenty. But beneath this kingdom, there will be an undercurrent, an undercurrent of darkness. The peace, the wealth, 
the entertainment, the security, the safety. It's all a lie. It's a strong delusion. It's a kingdom built by Satan with his power, with his signs, with his lying wonders. It's a kingdom designed to tickle the fancies and to inflame the pride of the human heart that loves to be at ease, the human heart that loves pleasure more than God, the human heart that worships the human spirit rather than the spirit of life, the spirit of truth, the spirit of righteousness, that spirit that comes from the mouth of the living God. This is no more clearly seen than in the man himself who will visibly represent this kingdom and who will stand at the pinnacle of this kingdom, the man of sin, that wicked who shall be revealed, that man whose coming is after the working of Satan with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. In the Greek, that wicked is anamos, that is, the one without law. And that tells us everything we need to know about the nature of the peace that this man will give to the world. It will be the kind of peace that allows men to imagine, at least, that they are their own gods to know good and evil, to decide what is good and evil for themselves according to their own pleasure and their own lusts. It will be the kind of prosperity that enables men and women to fulfill the lusts of their flesh and to do so without restraint, without any limitation. It will be pleasure that they will have, deep pleasure in unrighteousness. And the man of sin will give them that, enable them to have that. And he will establish his place in the hearts of men through signs and power and lying wonders. Lying wonders. What are those? I don't know. But I can't help but think of certain things that are being developed in our own world today. Virtual reality headsets that are growing in effectiveness and popularity and ease of access. And just like with all technologies, it would be extreme to say that things like that are inherently evil and that there's absolutely no good use for such a device. But what tremendous potential it has for evil. I don't think we have any idea. Just like they didn't know how the internet though it had many good and positive uses and still does have many good and positive uses, would nevertheless take something like adultery and explode that into a multi-billion dollar industry of pornography and sex trafficking and would destroy the hearts and the minds and the lives of many people from the inside out. So they have no idea to what new heights of evil these new technologies will take the world, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, etc., etc. Where is it all taking us? 
The hearts of men will be captured by the sensual sights and scintillating experiences available to them, and they will worship the one who gives these things to them. They will exalt him as the Savior, as the Deliverer, as God. Meanwhile, those who oppose this man and the kingdom he represents will be crushed. The man of sin has a head of gold, just like that image in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He appears great, appears wonderful, somebody you should follow. But don't forget that his legs are made out of iron. Iron to trample on, to crush, to destroy all those who oppose him and his kingdom. That's where the world is headed, beloved. The world as we see it, the world that we live in, is headed toward that kingdom, the kingdom that the man of sin will rule over. That's where it's headed. That's the direction world history is taking us. If I may be so bold as to say it this way, if you cannot see that happening, your eyes are closed. And you need to open your eyes. What the Scripture foretells is fulfilling before our very eyes. And it's all heading somewhere. Verse 7, The mystery of iniquity doth already work. The world is getting darker. However, into this dark world there will appear the brightness of the Lord who returns as the judge of the living and the dead. The word brightness in verse 8. In verse 8 we read, And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That word brightness in the Greek is the word epiphany. And its most strictly literal translation would be something more like appearing. He will destroy him by the appearing or the appearance of his coming. Jesus will appear. He will appear suddenly in the heavens. And when he appears, he will come down from the heavens. And he will set up his throne. And he will judge all men. And the very appearance of his coming will be so drastic that it will be enough to banish away all of the darkness and all of the, all of the lies that seem so well established in the world. The appearance of his coming, that's the most literal translation. And yet I think the King James hits the nail on the head with that word brightness. It's not just that he comes. It's not just that he appears. But it's that he appears as a thief in the night, suddenly, unlooked for, is that he appears with a face so dreadful that heaven and earth itself will flee from him in terror and in dread, like a bolt of lightning flashing against the dark thunderheads in a summer storm. So he will appear. Like when you flip the switch in a dark room so that light suddenly appears into the blindingly into the inky blackness, so will be the brightness of His coming. And when He comes in all of His brightness and all of His glory, He will see. There will be no time to hide it. No time to cover it up. He will see. He will see the man of sin sitting there in His temple, 
demanding to be worshipped as God. He will see the world of men, the human race, as they're selling their souls to the devil to fulfill their, their lusts. He will see his own people hiding in the dens and caves of the earth. And he will know who is responsible for banishing them there and for shedding their blood. He will know. He will see. Nothing will be hidden from his sight. And the brightness of his coming will destroy that man of sin along with everything that he has built. As surely as the darkness retreats when the sun rises on a new morning, the man of sin and all who followed him and all who worshipped him will be gone. Gone. Horse. That does not necessarily mean that this will all happen in the blink of an eye. For when he returns, he returns as the judge. And there will be a judgment. And the important thing about judgment is that it makes the lines very clear, very stark. Very visible. In judgment, there is black and there is white. There is light and there is darkness. There is wrong and there is right. And the point of going through the whole process of judgment is to make this very, very visible, to make it known and understood by all who witness the judgment unfolding. Before the judge sits down and declares his sentence, it's still possible to make things muddy. It's still possible to make things blurry. It's still possible to make things gray. And that's what people do. That's what people are busy doing today in the world. Oh, I don't know. Is it really wrong to speak blasphemies? I mean, they're just words. How can God take that so seriously? They're just words. Oh, is it really all that bad if a boy and a girl sleep together before they get married? What's the problem? They're probably going to get married one day anyway. What's the problem? Is it really such a problem if people get divorced for any reason? They'd be happier. They could just go their separate ways, find new spouses perhaps, or partners to use the language of today? Is it really so offensive for two women to get married to each other? I mean, they really seem to care about one another. They really seem to love one another. They're not hurting anybody else. What's the problem? Make it gray. Make it blurry. Make it unclear. Make it ambiguous. Human beings excel at this. They excel at this because human beings, human nature, the pride of the human heart, always wants to make a way for itself. Always wants to make itself the judge. I will be the one who determines good and evil. And if there's a standard over here that says this is right and wrong, and I disagree with that standard, well, I'll make a way. I'll, I'll blur the lines. I'll question the judge. I'll question his law, his standard. 
Before the judge sits down, it's possible to do that maybe for a while. But when the judge of heaven and earth takes his seat on his throne, there's no more shades of gray. There's no more questions. There's righteousness and there's unrighteousness. There are lies and deception, such as the man of sin will use to unite the world under his kingdom. And then there's the truth. And there's the kingdom of Christ, which is established on truth. And the point of judgment is that this must be known. It must be known that the man of sin is a liar. It must be known that the peace of the kingdom that the man of sin establishes is a false peace, a counterfeit peace. It must be known that God is righteous. It must be known that his cause is just. It must be known that he is the author of true peace. It must be known. Now, I don't know exactly what that day is going to look like, beloved. Nobody does except the Lord himself. But that day is coming. It's coming. More precisely, the Lord is coming coming to judge the living and the dead. And when he arrives, he will destroy the man of sin with the brightness of his return. And he will destroy all those who believe not the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. They will be damned, cast into outer darkness, the outer darkness of hell, treated as the enemies of God that they are and that they willingly make themselves to be. The lines will become very stark, very clear, Light and darkness, truth and lies, sheep and goats. Let no man deceive you. Let no man lull you into a false sense of ease so that you say, nah, nah. If and when that happens, that's going to be a long time from now. I've got time. I've got time. I've got time to get married and to give in marriage. I've got time to enjoy my eating and my drinking. I've got time. Time to make a living. Time to enjoy life. Time to be merry. I don't have to think about judgment. I don't have to think about the return of, of Jesus. And when that time finally comes, a long time from now, well, then I'll trim my lantern. And then I'll rouse myself from sleep. And then I'll wipe the weariness out of my eyes and I'll follow him. No. No. If that's your attitude, you will miss him. You will miss him. If that's your attitude, that attitude itself displays you have been deceived by a strong delusion. The Lord is coming, coming soon, coming to judge all men. But he comes also as the head. The Lord's Day speaks of that. And remember that this is an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. 
And there's something wonderful about that line that we confess in the Apostles' Creed every Sunday evening. I believe that from thence, that is, from the right hand of God, He shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe that. Now that's a strange line if you think about it. From thence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. That doesn't mean what you might think it means. It doesn't mean that when He comes, He will judge the people that are alive now or at the time that He comes as well as all of the people who have died over the centuries. The living now as, long, as well as all of the dead throughout the, the ages. Now that's true. Jesus will judge all humans who ever lived. He will summon all humans before His throne when He comes those who died over the years and those who are alive at the time of His return, all will be gathered before His throne. Pharaoh and His host will appear before Jesus even though long before Jesus returns, their bodies have decayed in the waters of the Red Sea and cannot be found in the earth. Yet, they will be there. They will be standing there before His throne. Ahab and Jezebel will be there. Elijah and Elisha will be there. The twelve disciples will be there, including Judas Iscariot. They will all be there. You will be there. I will be there, standing before that throne. But the living and the dead isn't so much about the passing of time. And it's not intending to describe who died when. The living and the dead is rather a statement about all of the people who will presently be standing before that throne when it happens. Among all of those people now gathered before the throne of Jesus, all people who ever lived gathered as one multitude now for the final judgment in that great sea of people that represents all of humanity, there will be the living and there will be the dead. And you will see it that way. You will see it that way. The bodies of Pharaoh and his host will be called up from the Red Sea and raised back to stand before Jesus. But their resurrection will be the resurrection unto damnation that Jesus speaks of in John 5, verse 29. The resurrection of damnation. Now exactly what that looks like or what that will look like is too dreadful for us to imagine right now. But you will see it. You will see it on that day. Only with your eyes. Not with your experience. Only with your eyes. But you will see it. Bodies of men fit for an existence in everlasting hell. The dead. That's what they are. The dead. But there will also be the living. The bodies of the saints raised up. Whether they died thousands of years ago, such as Abel who was killed by the, at the hand of Cain, or whether they died five minutes before Jesus appeared in the heavens, they will be raised. And they will be raised in bodies fit for life. Natural bodies will have become spiritual bodies. Earthy bodies will have become heavenly bodies as 1 Corinthians 15 describes it. Bodies of men fit now for an existence in everlasting glory in the new heavens and the new earth that will all be obvious on that day. 
No one is going to be standing there wondering what the verdict of the judge is going to be for them. That's the point. Everybody will know. Everybody will know by virtue of their own appearance and nature, the nature of their resurrection, and by the nature of their response to the coming of the judge. The wicked, when he returns, will flee from him. They will say to the mountains, fall on us and cover us from his coming. And that will be revelatory to the nature of the judgment itself. But every one of God's children also will know. They will know what the verdict is. They will know that God's judgment on them is that they are righteous. They will be standing there in bodies fit for heaven, standing there with the Lord. For He returns as their head and representative. He returns, as the Catechism says in question and answer 52, as the very same person who before offered Himself for their sake before the tribunal of God who has removed all curse from them who comes to translate them, His chosen ones, to Himself into heavenly joys and glories. And this will be perfectly just on His part, perfectly righteous on His part as the judge of heaven and earth. We said before in the first point that the whole point of this final judgment is to make it known, to make the judgment known, and specifically to make known the righteousness and the truth of God in His judgment, to show that sin is darkness and that God in His way is goodness and light. But that might raise a question in our minds. What about my sins? What about our sins? Our checkered pasts? And maybe the ungodly will understand that they deserve what they get. The resurrection unto damnation. That this is just and in accordance with the way they lived their life and the way they responded to God their whole life long. But won't that make them thrust their fingers in our direction and say, but what about them? What about them? They're no better than us. They've done the same things that we've done. They've spoken blasphemies or laughed at them. They've served their own pleasure, their own pride. They've taken pleasure in unrighteousness, gratifying their fleshly lusts. They've hurt. They've destroyed. They've robbed. They've stolen. They've lied. Just like any other man, if not outwardly and openly in their hearts. They deserve damnation. Just like the rest of us. But no. No. Accusations like these will fall dead on their lips. They'll never even escape their mouths. Why? Because they will have to make these accusations to the judge. And who is the judge? Well, it's the very person whom the world rejected and cast away outside the camp and nailed to a cross as a blasphemer and an evildoer. 
It's the very same person at whom they scoffed and mocked and accused and said, he's no Christ, he's a liar, he's a fraud. And with their own hands, they killed him. They condemned him. They stretched his arms out and pierced his hands and feet on that cross. They did it. Thus executing the very sacrifice before God that redeemed all of these people whom Jesus Christ calls His sheep. No. Their mouths will not so much as dare to open to make an accusation when looking into His face, the face of the judge, the face of the Lamb, who has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God that see all things, even into the hearts of men themselves. He comes, and He will come as our head, as our representative, our Redeemer. And remember, beloved, it's not only on that day that He is our head, but that's already true on this day. He comes in the future, yes, as our head and as our representative, but today He sits. He sits. Where does He sit? He sits at the right hand of God. Which means that this is not the kind of sitting, the kind of casual sitting that maybe we do on a Saturday afternoon. No, He sits in His royalty. He sits in His glory as the High King of Heaven. He sits with His eyes wide open, watching carefully all the things that are transpiring here below. Watching the world as it develops in wickedness. Watching and waiting for the time to draw near to that day when He must not sit any longer, but come and return as the judge. But He sits today. He sits in all His royal state, holding all power in heaven and earth. And He sits today as the head and representative of His people. I know, beloved, it may seem to us like the future is uncertain. I know it may seem to us like there, like there are many things to dread in the days that are coming. But it really only seems that way. The man of sin cannot so much as move apart from the righteous will and permission of Jesus. No new technology can be developed and implemented without His knowledge. No new frontiers of wickedness can be probed into and explored without him knowing about it. The very delusion itself, that strong delusion that takes over the world, comes according to the sovereign good pleasure and will of God. Did you catch that? In verse 11, it doesn't just say that there will be strong delusion, but it says, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. It's not the devil sending that strong delusion, although he has his part in it. It's not the man of sin who constructs this strong delusion, although he has his part in it. But God, God shall let the darkness come and fill the earth. God shall allow that to take place. He will even cause it to take place in preparation for the brightness of the coming of His Son. And that means that today, God reigns. He reigns. 
Jesus Christ reigns today as the head of His people, His church, to defend them from their enemies. He reigns today from His place at the right hand of God from where He pours out heavenly graces upon His people. He sends them tears of light to help them and to encourage them when they find themselves in dark places. He sends them messages of love from His Father from Sabbath day to Sabbath day. He gives them communion and fellowship among His brothers and sisters in the church. Jesus Christ reigns, beloved. He reigns today. He sits at the right hand of God and reigns as the head of His people, the church. And He's coming. He's coming. Coming for you. I think it's important at this point to send the message to anyone here who may be living at ease in unbelief. He's coming for you. He's coming for you. Don't think He isn't. Don't say to yourself, nah, this is just an old story meant to make us afraid so that we shape up. Don't say to yourself what the scoffer says, where is the promise of His coming For since the beginning of creation, all things continue as they have. Don't say to yourself, well, maybe this will happen a long time from now, but I've got time. I've got time. I've got time. If that's the way you think, you'll be caught. You'll be caught. If that's the way you think, You have embraced that strong delusion and you believe a lie and you will be caught in it. Like those five virgins in Jesus' parable who did not have oil for their lamps and therefore missed the coming of the groom and found when they came to the door where the feast was taking place that the door was shut against them The door will be shut. And these will be the words that you hear. No matter how you may protest, no matter how many excuses you may make, depart from me. Ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. For all who live in unbelief, who walk as the enemies of God, He's coming for you too. He's coming as the judge. He's coming to damn them for the pleasure that they take in unrighteousness. Don't think he won't. Don't think he'll make an exception just for you. There's still time, though. That day is not upon us yet. There's still time. Today, as the psalmist says, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts.
Don't explain away your sin. Don't try to make them gray with excuses. Turn from them. Turn from them. Believe on the Lord who shows great mercy on sinners who repent, who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked when they turn to him for forgiveness and life. He's coming. Don't forget it. And as for you, beloved, who know him and are known of him, He's coming for you. He's coming for you. And we're not to be afraid of his coming. Oh, I know there's a certain dreadfulness that even God's people will experience on that day. Everything will change in a moment. Things that we thought impossible will happen before our watching eyes. The stars will flicker out and fall from the heavens. The mountains will crumble into the sea. The heaven itself will be rent wide open. And we'll be standing there wondering, how is that even possible? There will be a dread awe, a dread awe as we behold the power of the Sovereign Lord in His return, the brightness and the glory of His coming. But we're not to be afraid. Not afraid with that that terror that the wicked will have as they say, let the mountains fall on us and hide us from His coming. We're not to think on that day, well, What if? What if I'm not among the living? What if the verdict goes against me? What if I'm condemned to death in the end? We're not to look at that day with the terror of judgment. Beloved, we're to look at that day with hope. Hope. He's coming. He's coming for me. That's the way you must think of it. He's coming to save me. To save me from the darkness of this world. He's coming to deliver me from that man of sin, from that strong delusion, from those lying wonders. He's coming for me to translate me out of this hole in the ground that I call a home so that I can go to my true home, which is in heaven. He's coming, and it's certain, it's certain that when he comes, I will be among them. It's certain that on that day, I will enter into life. It's certain Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation, the apostle says. Chosen you to salvation through the way of sanctification and belief of the truth. But your salvation on that day does not rest on your will. It rests on His. He will save you. He's coming for you. He's your head and your representative. Believe that, beloved. Believe it. Hold it close to your heart and persevere through all of the darkness and all of the fears that are coming. Stand fast, the apostle says. Stand fast. Plant your feet firmly on the ground. Stand fast and hold to the traditions that you've been taught. And God will comfort you. He will grant you all consolations as you wait, as you watch, as you expect the brightness of His coming. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, 
What a day that will be. We can scarcely imagine it. Prepare us, O Father. Prepare us for that day. Let not our hearts grow idle. Let us not be at ease. Give us a watchfulness. Give us a spirit of perseverance. Give us open eyes that we may know the times in which we live. We may not be deceived, but that we may be sanctified by the Spirit. Give us the grace, O Father, and the strength to stand fast and to hold on to those traditions that we may open that we may see in that day the Lord and His return without dread and terror, but with hope, with all of our hopes being fulfilled. Prepare us for that day. Prepare our children, our young people. Love them, O oh Father. Love us. Love us in this way that Thou wilt never let us go, never let us be carried off into the darkness of this world. Forgive us, O Father, when our hearts have have been afraid or full of doubts and trepidations. Forgive us and strengthen us. And hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. 